G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. 1993, Chapter 10, Colombia. The US-influenced Western media had done a terrific job of building my expectation that Colombia was a barbaric Wild West awash with drug lords, tourist murders and prospects for the Miss Universe crown. Instead, we found a friendly, sophisticated, scenically kaleidoscopic country awash with prospects for the Miss Universe crown. Sure, as our guidebooks warned us, areas such as Medellin and Cali were too dangerous for foreigners to visit due to the dangers associated with the cocaine trade. There were also regions in the Colombian Andes Mountains where communist revolutionaries were fighting a slow-burning war with the government. But the other 90% of the country was a traveller's paradise. That's not to say that there wasn't the odd dodgy moment. On our second day in Colombia, our media-driven misconceptions seemed to be confirmed when we watched a handbag thief pursued, then caught, then beaten up by a mob who'd grown bigger as the chase evolved. When the middle-aged lady who owned the handbag finally caught up to the crowd who'd encircled the thief, she was given elbow room to deliver her own kicks, slaps and verbal abuse. When the police arrived to take the now bruised and bloodied thief away, One of the crowd pulled a gun from his belt and waved it in the thief's face to further make the point. Quite the scene. The very next night, we and a hundred others made a panicked exit from a disco when a brawl erupted and someone pulled a gun from their coat. But we saw nothing more like this in our three weeks there. So to begin at the beginning. Looking at a basic world map, you'd think it'd be easy to get to Colombia from Panama overland. You just catch the bus west from Panama City to the village of Yavita and walk it to the border from there. I suppose if push came to shove, you could probably give it a crack. But you'd most likely die in the attempt. This was the start of the Darien Gap. It's nice to know that there are some parts of the natural world that are still beyond human attempts to tame it. The first 50 kilometres are steep mountains and thick forest on the Panama side. The next 80 kilometres are swampland on the Columbia side. The idea of building a road through the Darien Gap has been floated twice in the last 50 years, and both times abandoned as too difficult and too expensive. The only people who occupy this region are native tribes, some of whom decorate themselves with vivid red and blue dyes, as seen in the film Baraka. And the only people who venture through this region are entry-level cocaine smugglers who'd think nothing of killing you to keep their secret trails secret. So instead of going missing in the Darien wilderness, we took the soft option, a one-hour flight from Panama City, east-northeast surprisingly, to Cartagena, Colombia. It was the 21st of July and my journey home was now six months old. For four days we stayed in Casco Viejo, the oldest part of Cartagena. We walked the 300-year-old streets, finding our favourite cheap restaurants and cake shops. We discovered Colombia's luminescent fruits, maracuya, gulupa, uchuba, zapote, pitaya, to name a few. We discovered arepas, like what the English might call pasties, and comida corriente, 
the basic plate of food served by the simplest restaurants, which filled us up each meal for less than $2. If we wanted to be extravagant, we could spend another couple of dollars on Colombian pastries or crepes and the best coffee in the world. We also discovered a cafe that agreed to pay Dunedin Mike and I 10 bucks each, plus food and drink, for performing our music for a few hours. We called ourselves Bombora and began our South American tour. Our itinerary for the next three weeks was built around an invitation to stay in Colombia's capital city, Bogota, for a week or two in August. This invitation had come from Lundy and Melissa, a travelling couple we'd met in El Salvador, then re-met in Costa Rica. Lundy was a surfer from Queensland and Melissa was his Colombian wife. Melissa was returning to Colombia for a few months to help with her family's business. So she and Lundy had the use of Mel's family city apartment and they were keen for some company. With ten days to kill until we could take up their offer, Mike and I decided to explore the scenic inland route through the mountains on the slow way south to the capital from Cartagena. Our lonely planet advised that the journey to El Cocoy National Park in the High Andes Mountains was one of Colombia's highlights, so this was the path we chose. Our 1,200-kilometre journey began with a bus southeast to Yati, then a ferry down the Magdalena River to Santa Cruz de Mompox. Our guidebook banged on about the old Spanish architecture in Mompox, but we found it underwhelming. Sure, it was old, but I thought it was clunky. And I found it hard to go wow about remnants of the 16th century Spanish invasion of South America that destroyed the lives and culture of millions of the original inhabitants in the name of a loving Jesus Christ. A rumpf. So the next day, we cruised further south down the river to El Banco, where a horse-drawn taxi connected us with a six-hour bus ride to Bucamaranga, where we stopped for the night. This was the launch pad for what must surely still be one of the world's great road journeys. The next morning, before we'd even reached the outskirts of Bucamaranga, our bus was ascending at what seemed like 45 degrees into the Andes. Switchback after switchback took us at snail pace past tidy, though chaotic suburbs clinging to the mountainside. After an hour or so in first gear, we entered a stunning treeless plateau well above 3,000 metres. My diary entries were the only way I could record this journey. The scenery had too much width, height, colour and texture to capture in a photo. Even these days, with the iPhone panorama setting, it'd be a challenge. And back in 1993, you had to choose your photo subjects carefully. Photos were made in hard copy on film that was both expensive and limited in quantity. Each roll of film produced a maximum of 36 images that couldn't be deleted or retaken, and it was rare for anyone to carry more than a dozen rolls of film as it deteriorated rapidly with age. Through 1993, I tried to limit myself to taking about 10 photos a week, a hard target when there was so much to visually record. That night we stopped in a small town called Pamplona, at an altitude of 2,500 metres, and about a third of the way to El Cocoy. In the morning, the roads and scenery became even more spectacular, as if that would have been thought possible the day before. The bus wound south on roads barely clinging to dizzying vertical drops into the river valleys below. I can tell from the scribble in my diary that I was writing to overcome fear.
It was six more exhilarating hours to Cerrito via Chitaga than on to Malaga, where suddenly it was hot after the cool of the more exposed high plateau. By now we had become familiar with the far too frequent roadside shrines built to commemorate the buses that had fallen into the steep valleys, either by driver error or act of God. The shrines were built as close as possible to the spot where the bus and passengers had met their end, and were an eerie melange of local rocks, concrete, religious icons and old car headlights. We guessed that each headlight represented one of the dead. Some were over two metres high and wide, and built close enough to the road to cause the next accident. Most mountain towns had further shrines to appeal to God, and or Jesus, and or the Virgin Mary, to keep the bus attached to the road and the driver awake. I entrusted my life to hundreds of these bus driver heroes over the next five months. In Malaga, the bus driver and his assistant were taking a rest and caffeine break before their return journey, and they insisted Mike and I accompany them to the cafe in the park that served, so they claimed, the best pastries, crepes and coffee in Colombia. They might have been right. Then it was on to Capitanejo, via Taxi Colectivo, a taxi that departs only after enough passengers have been found to wedge into every millimetre of the multiple bench seats. Our final ride to El Cocoy skirted ever more horrifying vertical drops into river valleys. On this road, there weren't even the flimsy roadside guardrails that had pretended to protect us on the roads before. Yikes. We'd covered just 250 kilometres from Bucamaranga at an average speed of less than 20 kilometres an hour and survived one of the great two-day journeys that any intrepid traveller would die, perhaps actually, to experience. On this final stretch of the journey, our bus had been boarded by what appeared to be half a dozen 14-year-olds wearing full camouflage army uniform. Each of them carried an automatic machine gun. The one who sat next to me spoke no English, but we attempted conversation via my childish Spanish. He cheerfully demonstrated how to turn his gun's safety switch on and off. I liked on much better. These young blokes were presumably the government's defence against FARC, that's F-A-R-C, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. This Marxist-Leninist group of peasants had been trying to undermine the Colombian government since 1964, usually through terrorism of various forms. In 1993, FARC had between seven and 10,000 active fighters spread across Colombia's rural regions. On a historical side note, I promise I'll keep it short. Didn't Marx and Lenin insist that only urban workers, not peasants, could lead a genuine communist revolution? Anyways, the region of the Andes we were traversing had become strategically significant as the link point between FARC's forces in the east and west. It seemed bizarre that such a scenically beautiful place could be the home of conflict of any kind. It simply didn't deserve it. FARC raised a lot of their funds from kidnap and extortion, and not long after we were there, they held an American scientist hostage for nearly a year. But if Mike and I were in danger, our guidebooks didn't say the route was dangerous, we were blissfully unaware of it. Thirty years later, I wonder if the boy soldiers had been assigned to our bus to make sure FARC couldn't use us two gringos as bargaining chips. If so, then muchas gracias. Walking out in the south, come on, walk. 
In the morning, we hitched a ride with the daily milk truck into the mountains above El Cocoy town to the Alto La Coeva lookout. After an hour or two gawping at the stunning views, we walked three hours cross-country back to town. That afternoon, we busked in the town square to a growing crowd, a couple of whom invited us to their cafe to play some more. From there, we were invited to that night's fiesta in the town square. With body and spirits warmed by Agua Diente, the local rocket fuel, we all danced in the street to the ever-joyous salsa while the moon rose above the church tower. It was an appropriate end to a magic few days of travel. The next day was spent on a series of bus rides on uncomfortable roads through the mountains south to Sogamoso, via Suata and Duitama. The Lago de Tota, Tota Lake, underwhelmed us the next morning, though if we'd been travelling north instead of south, it would have had a much better chance to impress. With another five-hour bus ride, we reached Bogota in the early afternoon of the last day of July. From the bus station, we phoned Melissa and took a taxi to the address she gave us. We pulled up at a modern 30-storey building on a busy street in downtown Bogotá. She met us outside, and we took the lift up, and up, and oh my giddy aunt. The views from every window of the apartment looked across just about all of Bogotá to the mountains beyond, and directly beneath us lay the Santa Maria Plaza del Toros the bullfighting ring, though, thankfully, as far as I was concerned, no bullfight was held in the ten days this was our home. In the morning, a Sunday we discovered, Mel took us on foot to her boss's office. He toasted us with a nip of vodka, then took us out for lunch at a Swiss restaurant. There we were educated in ajiaco, sort of Bogota's signature dish, a wonderful soup made of chicken, potatoes, corn and herbs. For dessert, we drank sangria. Then it was on to another downtown restaurant for more drinks and food, this time with some girls added to the party, so Mel wasn't the only girl at the table. But Mel's boss's hospitality was only just warming up. In the late afternoon, we were taken by chauffeur-driven limousine about 30 kilometres into the country to a restaurant housed in what looked like a large barn. There we were introduced to a huge old man holding court at the biggest table. This was Don Fabio Ochoa, 70 years old, 200 plus kilograms, and the patriarch of the world-famous Ochoa family. Three of Don Fabio's sons ran Colombia's biggest cocaine cartel. Don Fabio, however, had nothing to do with the drug trade. As Mel's boss had explained on the way there, Don Fabio had been born into one of Colombia's leading landowning families and his life's quest had been to breed the world's finest Pasolfino horses. This restaurant was his way of sharing them with the public. Without rising from his huge seat, Don Fabio greeted our party as if we were family, and gestured for us to sit at his table with his elegant wife, who must have been 50 years his junior. For the next three or four hours, multiple courses of fantastic food and drinks, and more girls to even up the numbers, were brought to our table. Then came the horses. From stables adjoining the barn-like dining area, magnificent horses were paraded on the flagstones between the two lines of tables. 
Each horse was ridden, not led, into the crowded restaurant, and introduced through a PA as if they were rock stars. To my ignorant eye, I know as much about horses as I do about guns and the periodic table, it looked a bit silly. Sure, these were beautiful animals, but they were performing these prancing, dancing steps that seemed beneath their dignity. Still, as the guest of the richest man in Colombia, who was sitting three seats away from me and owned these horses and this restaurant, I tried to get interested. Thankfully, while we watched the show, Mel's boss explained that these Pasofino horses are born with a rare rhythm in their gait that makes them arguably the most comfortable, agile and sure-footed horses to ride. Sadly, most people, or am I the only one, know them only as those funny horses that did that prancy stuff. But, as I learned, this movement was only used to demonstrate how perfectly rhythmic the horse's gait was. The faster they could move their legs in perfect time, the better the horse. Apparently, they're most highly prized as working horses, and especially when rounding up livestock. But it was hard to show this quality in a restaurant. It was a bit like showing off a Kelpie dog by making it walk on its hind legs. After five or six extraordinary horses had been paraded, there was a short interval to build suspense. Ten minutes later, with an introduction befitting the entrance of a world heavyweight boxing champion, came the star of the show, a magnificent tall black horse called El Atrevido del Ocho. The crowd went silent in awe. Mel's boss whispered in my ear that this was the most valuable Pasofino horse in the world, worth well over a million dollars. And now I was an expert, I could appreciate how perfectly symmetrical his gait was at any tempo. After a couple of majestic laps of the restaurant, El Atrevido del Ocho stopped to tower over our table while the rider dismounted. From somewhere, Don Fabio's three-year-old daughter was produced and hoisted into the horse's saddle. Totally composed as if she'd been doing this all her life, which of course she had, the little girl took the powerful horse for a few more circuits of the restaurant. Under the control of the girl's tiny ankles and wrists, the horse performed complicated manoeuvres designed to show off variations of its perfectly rhythmic gait. Its hooves struck the flagstones like flamenco castanets. When the show was over, Don Fabio proudly gave us print photographs of his daughter sitting on a miniature white-with-black-spots pony surrounded by six Dalmatian dogs. Even after the kaleidoscopic events of the preceding six months, this day broke all records for what the hay just happened. During dinner, I asked Mel's boss to ask Don Fabio if he transported the horses he bred around the world. Mike, my host in Barbados six months before, made a living from organising the transport of racehorses, especially between Ireland and the USA. I wondered if Don Fabio would be interested in being connected with Mike as a means of exporting his horses to Europe. I watched as Mel's boss asked Don Fabio this question. Don Fabio gazed steadily over at me, then gestured for the seating to be rearranged so Mel's boss was on his right and I was one seat further round. I was now in business with the richest man in Colombia. Five bucks to anyone who saw that coming. Using Mel's boss as his interpreter, Don Fabio tells me he's been wanting to sell his horses to the Arabs for years. If the Arabs could ride my horses, he says, they'd know the very best of Arabian horses and nothing more than cows.
Yes, he's very interested in getting in touch with Mike about transportation, and we arranged to meet back at the restaurant on Friday. There being no email in those days, the only way to contact Mike quickly was by phone. Calling Ireland from Bogota required the patience of a saint. International calls had to be made from a post office and often involved waiting in a queue for an hour or more. But at last I got through. After recovering from his surprise at receiving a call from me and that I was in Colombia, he was even more surprised by my left field business proposition. Mike thought he might be interested. Well, he was certainly intrigued, but he'd need some time to think. Our Bogota apartment had no phone, so I called him back from the post office the next day. In this next phone conversation, Mike cut straight to the chase. You know this bloke's the head of the Ochoa family, the one that runs the cocaine trade. Yes, I say, but Don Fabio's got nothing to do with cocaine. He's about 70 and breeds Pasofina horses near Bogota. It's three of his sons who've turned the family's land holdings into a multinational crime operation. For a few days, Mike wonders about flying to Bogota for a meeting with Don Fabio. If this came off, Mike stood to open a lucrative new branch of his business, and I might receive a percentage from having put them in touch. So Mel's boss arranges for us to return to Don Fabio's restaurant the next Friday. To my slight surprise and great honour, Don Fabio has taken me seriously, despite my travelling hippie appearance, and is ready to continue our business discussions. Sadly, however, once we're seated at the table, I discover my translator, Mel's boss, has underestimated the gravity of the occasion. He's taken on one or three too many drinks in the course of the day, and his translation skills go out the window. Don Fabio gets annoyed, and business negotiations are concluded with no further progress. The next day I call Mike to report my disappointment, but he reports that he's got too much on to open a new branch of his business. Besides, flights across the Atlantic are likely to be disrupted over the next few days by a big hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. So his impromptu visit to Bogota can't happen anyway. In a way, it's a relief. For me too, it was getting too complicated. The rest of South America stretched out before me, and I didn't want to delay my journey while waiting for an opportunity that might come to nothing. So everything fell through. I wonder if Don Fabio's horses ever made it to Arabia. Still, the extra days I spent in Bogota weren't wasted time. The place, the weather, the people, the culture and the views were a heady mix. City life was chaotic. I was horrified watching my Colombian friend Fulbia trying to catch a bus to work one day. Buses often couldn't meet the passengers at the curbside bus stop because of stationary or speeding cars in the lanes beside them. So the passengers had to dart through one or more lanes of traffic to meet the bus where it stood. Once beside the bus door, with the traffic whizzing past millimetres away, a shoving match ensued, evenly contested by all ages and genders, for the last standing room on the bus available. How thousands avoided death through this process every day was astounding. Conversely, a different type of chaos was induced almost daily by huge processions celebrating something religious, political, or sometimes seemingly just a school excursion, which gave themselves the right to turn major city roads into six-lane car parks for an hour or more. We visited the brilliant museums and galleries where Obregon and Botero were the stars. 
we declared the pasteles on Calle 19 the best so far in Latin America. We spent nights in the apartment looking out over the city lights as if we were in a scene from Blade Runner, listening to Enigma, Edie Brickell and the Gypsy Kings, who I found I could tolerate if the singer stopped yelling. And I tried to read Old Patagonia Express, Paul Theroux's account of his journey through South America. But I took great offence at the author for poo-pooing the budget-obsessed travellers he met, who were just like me. On August 10th, we set off for Ecuador, nearly a thousand kilometres south. Again, the buses skirted vertical cliffs through river valleys and many variations of breathtaking scenery. We stayed in simple pensions in Armenia, then Popoyan. We met South African Tessa again, who we'd first met in Cartagena two weeks before. She was struggling to recover from finding that the dear friend she'd come to visit in Colombia was barely recognisable due to an enslavement to both cocaine and strippers. Finally, we passed through still more wonderful country, sometimes arid, sometimes lush. In Narino province, beautiful fragrances filled the bus through its open windows. From the lovely town of Ipiales, it was just a ten-minute ride to Ecuador, where we're going next. Viva Colombia Linda! If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at jameswiley.com and there's a link in the show notes. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends without whom this wouldn't exist. And if you want to make a podcast, look up Rod Morrie at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. See ya. Spring and chase my dreaming again.